Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone. Running far, far from home Till I am skin and bone I don't want to die But I'll have to try I don't want to everybody a gift today what's that uh we already did our chit chat before yes we did yes i feel i don't know if you're into it you know if you like catching up with us that's great and lovely but i know not everybody likes uh a lot of talking on the top of a podcast and a lot of people just skip to the content which i understand i do but um yeah, we uh Haley's wedding is coming up and Yep. Like I'm three-ish months, yeah. Three-ish months, yeah. I was talking to Alex about it because I had like a little stress dream the other day. Or it wasn't even a dream. I just like woke up stressed because I was like, holy crap, we have to get the numbers to the caterer in like yeah. at the end of the month, you know? And he was like, It'll be fine. And I was like, Okay, like I appreciate the positive attitude, but also can you just have like an inkling of stress with me about this? Like <laughs> You know, like, I'm a little worried. Um, But, you know, he's like, we have, like, four months. I'm like, Alex, we don't have four months. We have, Mm-mm. like, three months. He's like, but it's closer to four. And I was like, no. no. Like, <laughs> like, oh, my God. Like, I was like, everything needs to be wrapped up, like, by the first of March because I am not going to be stressing out, running around everywhere, Mm-mm. trying to, like, finalize everything like weeks before the wedding like I want to be able to relax and know everything's taken care of and like I have everything done and just like ready to pull the trigger you know yeah let's do it so yeah so we had a little chat about all of that and Mm -hmm. some personal stuff that you know doesn't necessarily need to be on air and uh we're in a good place which is good because I kind of have a long one today (laughs) all (laughs) righty and uh yeah, so long story short, I started the topic, decided that just one story wasn't enough length. And so I ended up doing two stories because that's how I operate. That's fine. I, <laughs> I see like, that there's 15 pages of content here. Yeah, well, nice. some of it's pictures. All right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yes, some of it is pictures. All in all, it's probably like eight pages, I think. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's that's how this this kind of happened um and uh this is gonna be our last episode for a little while mm-hmm. um partially because of the upcoming nuptials yes <laughs> and just we need we need a break every now and then yeah ourselves but i had to round out with 75 i couldn't leave it on 74 that's fair i uh <laughs> i looked at our wedding website today and it says that we have 77 days left until 
we'd get married. And I was like, oh, I wanted to make a post about this, but maybe I'll wait till it's 75 because that's Yeah. like a good, that's a good number. I don't know why fives are a good number because <laughs> I know. everybody like likes how fives work because you know you can multiply them and equals Make them either whole or whatever. yeah but uh, it just felt correct and uh the topic i picked is one that um kind of came about from last week or last episode's conversation about how we only ever talk about white men Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh how you know white men are the kind of people who throw themselves into these situations um Yes, they or are. or you know the stories of other people are not necessarily getting recorded in the same way Yeah. um Because their and so like history's just been yeah like ruined throughout time. Well, and and recently, because you know, white men have all the power. Um, our history books are written to, you know, benefit that, benefit them. Yeah. And I feel like it's been the last decade that we have a lot of stories about that are coming out supposedly out of the woodwork, but they've always been there about other events, other people, Mm hmm. you know, people of color, women, all this stuff that has really Yeah. also been going on in the background. Um, it just wasn't recorded or was recorded incorrectly Yep. and from, you know, a specific lens. <laughs> Mm hmm Yep. and so that's kind of why I wanted to do these stories. Um, That sounds great. and both of these have been uh, kind of um, in my head for a while as like good ones to do. Mm hmm But now, now that I research these, I'm like, oh, wow, these are kind of amazing. And frankly, it's a good one to end on because it's a little bit more lighthearted than our usual Okay. fare. That's good. <laughs> I like that. like people still die, but Oh, okay. <laughs> But it's lighthearted in it's a way. more lighthearted. It's more inspirational. It's less grisly, if that makes Yeah, sense. that's Um, fair. you know, we're not being roped in between our two dead friends and... Oh my god, dude. Let me tell you. That episode I get done and Alex is like, "What every time we we finish one and he's home, he's like always asks like, you know, what I learned? What did we talk about, you know?" Yeah. And I was like, dude, I got to show you this picture. It's real fucked up. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's not good. I was like, this guy was almost saved. And he was just like, ah, I'm done. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And just, oh, God, so sad. And then you know what I did, like, the following week is I watched uh, Free, Free, Free Free Solo. Solo. Yes. Yeah. I was like, you know, I need to just. get this out of my system even though the guy lives in free solo you know i was just like you know i was on that like you know rock climbing brain and i was Yeah. like i need to go watch free solo and make sure i know that someone stays alive during this process <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll do more like <laughs> uh rock climbing stories because there's a lot of them. I mean, we do a lot yeah of mountaineering stories that involve rock climbing, but we've yeah not done a lot of like, you know, people going up like the half dome or whatever at Yosemite Yeah. or you know, stuff like that. Cause that that's that freaks me out a lot too. I've always wanted to do the half dome hike. And like, I know you got to get a permit for it and stuff. But like, that's something that I've like always wanted to do.
And it kind of scares me like looking at it. Cause I'm like, Oh, is it just, I like, I know it's not that easy. Like there's the cable section where you have mm-hmm. to like, literally like climb up that, that spot, you know? And I'm like, I, I would be so happy if I could get that like off my bucket list, but yeah. I'm also like very well aware of the fact that I am a little too scared to ever do that. So yeah. 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 And like, I, I tried climbing. I said this in the last episode, but I tried rock climbing and turned out I hated it. I got like maybe 12 feet off the ground and I was like, nope, don't like yeah. it. And uh, then I just learned how to belay. Yeah, really, I'm like, really. belay. <laughs> so belay for everybody. Oh my gosh. So that's that's another heeb-jeeb of mine that we haven't really um, like explored. Yeah. I know I, I go to the polar and the cave stories. Those are my favorites. But um, I try I try to sprinkle in yeah. other stories. <laughs> the diving ones, too, give me some tummy issues. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah, the diving ones. Honestly, like, after, I don't know, like, after hearing, like, all of these, like, things about people getting bent, and just like currents and stuff I'm like I don't know if I ever need to go diving again like I'll snorkel I'll free dive like you know 25 foot you know whatever but I don't know like diving kind of scares me now and I think it scares me because like I know I have asthma and like I'm not a strong Mm -hmm. swimmer because of my asthma and so like I never want to dive anywhere deep enough where I'm going to have to do like a 15 minute safety stop because like, yeah. if I start having like an asthmatic event underwater, like I need to know that I can just pop back up to the surface. And, right. Like, right. Get to my inhaler and like get to the boat. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, yeah, that's, I don't think I, I've, I've done a 100 foot dive to a wreck. Like I'm good. Like, yeah, that once I'm all right. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> I do know because Corey and I are also kind of in the same boat where we're like, you know what? We really like shallow dives. We see a lot more. Yeah. And we know that if something goes wrong, we can pop up to the surface with like minimal issues. Yeah. You know, we'll and that's kind of something we've somewhat decided. That's not to say we'll never do a deep dive again. Yeah. Or a deep er dive, but like, on the whole, I think we just enjoy them better or more because mm-hmm. we're not freaking out about like air or, you know, are we doing everything correctly? You know, we're just yeah. kind of enjoying ourselves. Um, yes. Not that we're not paying attention to like safety stuff. So, yeah, that's just, uh, you know, something that we because we can just enjoy it more because we're not worried at all. Like yeah. there's not that nagging feeling, you know? Yeah, I agree. So. That's like same with me too. It's like, I just want to be able to like see some cool animals and like right. enjoy it and then like resurface without a problem. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, that kind of changed when we went to the Molokini crater in Maui and I got caught by a current and dragged up from like 80 feet to the surface. Yeah. Didn't have any issues somehow. Thankfully. But, uh, yeah. I could have had um, some issues. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a little, uh, a little scary, but uh, what we're probably going to see about doing some diving though, um, when we come to the keys um, uh, in a couple months. So yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I got to get going on that. I got to book things. 
Yeah. I was like, I'll take care of it after the holidays. It'll be fine. Well, after the holidays is here and now I got to take care of it. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, we had a massive bleaching event this past summer. So like, I'm interested to see like how mm. the diving is like, I don't go out and dive all that much, but Alex recently fixed the engine on his boat. So like the next good day that we have, that's not too windy. We're going to go out and like run his boat to like condition the motor and like that'll be nice to actually be out there to see like you know actually get out and snorkel and like yeah. swim around and like do all that stuff to like see kind of like what the reef looks like right now because yeah. I I really don't know what it looks like right now I've only seen pictures of like what the summer damage was but yeah I yeah. I'd be curious and we've been talking about that but we don't get to um dive all that often and it's a good opportunity so we're just gonna do it and yeah i know you should it's, it goes. It's, yeah lukey is like still one of the best ones i guess is like mm. from what i know and that's pretty shallow yeah it's like 25 feet yeah 30 yeah. maybe but um, yeah you don't need a safety stop for that one no, no you don't yeah well Speaking of the tropics and speaking of the ocean, that's kind of our topic today. Um, yeah. So I started writing a story about the Hawaiian surfer Duke Kahanamoku. Um, nice. I am going to be super curious to see how you're going to enunciate all these words because <laughs> my conservation corner, I had to literally Google pronunci- pronunciations. And I may mess them up, and I truly, truly apologize to the Hawaiian people. I am doing my best as a Howley to pronounce um, everything. Um, I do have, like, the slight of advantage of, like, I is going to sound so fucking white, but I've been to Hawaii, like, three times, tried really hard to like learn pronunciations and pay attention to like native Hawaiian words while I was there. Yeah. Um, so I've already kind of gotten at least that mindset when it comes to pronouncing words, if yes. that makes sense. Yeah, like how yeah. the language kind of sounds. That makes um, sense. Not every tourist who goes to the islands does that, but I, I tried because I, I try Important to be an ethical, yeah. ethical traveler. You know what I mean? We've talked about this a lot on the podcast um but so I started writing that story and then I remembered this other story about Eddie Akau and um so I just ended up doing both basically nice <laughs> so we're talking about two of probably the most famous surfers okay um, or yeah, probably two of the most famous surfers in Hawaii. Um, back in the early days when surfing was just kind of starting to take off. Yeah. Um, one of them is a bit of a bittersweet kind of tale, but it gives me like goosebumps. So I was like, well, we need to talk about that one. And then the other one definitely comes out much happier yes okay (laughs) okay good 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 so first we'll talk about eddie so eddie ryan makua hanai akau was born in kahului maui on may 4th 1946 and he was the second oldest of the five akau kids and the leader of the group from the early days on maui 
to their surfing days on the North shore of Oahu. Mm-hmm. Um, his brother, Clyde Akau, uh, talked about growing up with Eddie saying, Eddie was a pretty quiet guy, but when there was a challenge or some risk to be taken or a game to be played that everybody wanted to win, Eddie seemed to rise to the top. He was high risk at an early age. Uh, he was hired at 16 as the first official lifeguard to work Waimea Bay on Oahu's North Shore in 1967. And cool. if anybody knows anything about surfing, the North Shore on Oahu is kind of like one of the premier surfing Iconic. spots in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I drove up there with my parents the first time I ever went to Hawaii. And when I tell you, those waves are terrifying to witness. Oh, I bet. (laughs) And we weren't even in, like, peak season, so. I, like, sometimes I'll just put on, like, the Red Bull channel or something for, like, background noise. And it's, Mm -hmm. like, big wave surfing. And it's just, like, insane. I can't imagine doing that. Yeah, so we saw that, and there's also Jaws and Maui, which we talked about as yeah. well when we talked about the big wave surfers. Um, and it's just, you're just like, how did people just decide, like, this This will be good, this will be fun. But you got to remember, Hawaiians have been doing this, like, as an ancient tradition for, you know, hundreds of years, yes. if not thousands. Yeah. Um, just like in, it's like in people's blood, you know what I mean? Is that makes sense yeah Yeah. they're like raised on it yeah like a generation after generation yeah exactly so so when he was a uh a lifeguard um at that time he was challenging some of the biggest waves the hawaiian islands had to offer just to rescue people Mm -hmm. um so he and his two brothers worked there for 10 years until 1978 and had never lost a single person Oh, wow. It's basically 10 years on the North Shore, and they never lost anybody. That's crazy. I know. Um, And this is, like, before jet ski technology. Yeah. They're just paddling out on their boards. And, like, picking them up and putting them back on. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's wild. Um, He rescued and saved the lives of over 500 people during this period. Oh my god. Yeah. 500 people over 10 years. Yeah. I I can't math that right now, but that's a lot of people per day. I think that's like 50 people per year. Per year. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, yeah, per month is what that's. That's that's like a person a week. Yeah. That's what I was like trying to math it out in my head. I was like, oh my god. That's like once. Yeah. Once a week about you're like probably more than once a week or 52 well i guess it depends on the season you know yeah yeah but geez louise Mm -hmm. i bet if it's like if it's like a friday he and he hasn't like rescued anybody yet he's like well bound to happen sometime right days Mm -hmm. so his heroics and rescues led to the motto among surfers um eddie would go yeah. referring to like what Eddie would, would go do? to rescue. Eddie would go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff I read that like says that the Eddie would go motto like happened after this event, but oh, okay. there's a lot of other people that are like no, that's always kind of been been the motto. The motto like ever since he was a lifeguard. Yeah. Um so while he worked as a lifeguard on the North Shore, 
he surfed every major swell that came through and competed and won the 1977 Duke Kahan and Moku Invitational Surfing Championship. And to those of you that are paying attention, Duke Kahanamoko is the other person we're going to talk about today. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but he made his mark, like, initially on November 19th, 1967, um, just riding a giant swell at Waimea Bay, which remains the biggest day ever surfed in Waimea. Nice. So. Good for him. And, you know, he he did win a lot of surfing competitions, Mm -hmm. um, but he didn't necessarily, like go do any crazy surf competitions. He's more well-known mm-hmm. for his lifeguarding, basically. Gotcha, gotcha. And, he, and then that's made him, like, iconic among Hawaiians, especially yeah. Native Hawaiians. Yeah. That's so cool. Because, um, you know, in the early to mid-1970s, he traveled to, like, South Africa, South America, and Australia to participate in early pro surfing events. But, like, he wanted to stay on the islands and you know help the communities there that was his main drive not the pro surfing necessarily yeah and this is because there's this whole backstory to him so eddie was a legend at the time uh during a, a turbulent period of hawaiian history that occurred about 20 years after hawaii became an american state and this was called the second hawaiian renaissance and anybody who's been, hopefully, who pays attention will know that Native Hawaiians aren't necessarily the biggest fans of um, the American government. Yeah. <laughs> because, and a lot of tourists um, and corporations that have benefited off the islands, yeah, um, like the hotel industry and the plantation industry, you know, pineapple, sugarcane, that stuff. Because we essentially took the state from the Kingdom of Hawaii in a bloodless coup. Oh, really? Like I I never I didn't know like the background Mm -hmm. of how we obtained. So technically they're not like if you want to look at really technically, it's not legally Hawaii wasn't legally taken, if that makes sense. Let me let me do a little goog here. Yeah. So And, you know, when we did take the state, when we did, you know, colonize the area, you know, we kind of tried to kind of take the Hawaiian culture away Mm -hmm. and out of, you know, Hawaiians, you know. And so this Hawaiian renaissance is kind of a pushback to that and basically reclaiming culture, reclaiming traditions that have been there for thousands of years, that kind of thing. And this is still ongoing, you know, to this day. And a lot of people don't know that. So go look it up for yourself. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't include it. You know, the whole how it happened. If you want to figure that out for yourself, you know, Google is free. And there's a lot of free information about it out there. Yeah. But a lot of later, a lot of Native Hawaiians still consider Hawaii to be the kingdom of Hawaii. Yeah. Not the state. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you? So Eddie was a legend during this time. Um, so like I said, Native Hawaiians were determined to reclaim their heritage from a, a government that was encroaching on their communities and livelihoods. 
this is something that happens all over the world all the time. Yay, colonialism. Woohoo. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Woo. So <laughs> this came to a head when the International Professional Surfing uh, IPS was founded in 1976 and created a circuit of professional surfing competitions. Um, before this, the North Shore was surfed primarily by local and native Hawaiians. Um, but following this, the IPS held a number of competitions on the North Shore at popular spots like Pipeline and Sunset. The number of competitions jumped from three to 24 a year on the North Shore. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And this forced local surfers to stay away from their surf spots unless they were registered as competitors and given permits, which required That's so money. annoying for them. Yeah, that's so annoying for them. That's like two competitions a month. Yeah. And, you know, now they're stuck bumping elbows with all of the pro surfers that want to come out and practice. Yeah. Yep. So it was basically seen as locals as a marginalization of Native Hawaiians. And a group of 30 surfers formed the Huyo Heinali to protest the IPS. Members of the Huyo would wear black swim shorts with two thin stripes down the outside sides one yellow and one red Mm. so and they would paddle into competition zones and ride forbidden waves so they'd basically just show up to the competition and surf they're like the cowboy surfer they're like you know the outlaw surfer (laughs) yeah basically which i'm like that is so cool (laughs) yeah and oftentimes they would like show up the pros by just like taking the biggest waves and riding yeah, them. Yeah, that's so, awesome. I'm like, that's that's great. So they would also get in fights with Howley surfers, aka, you know, the white mainlanders, and were denounced as terrorists by some of the local media. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they Which were. Y'all need to learn what true terrorism is. Yes. <laughs> it's not riding a wave. <laughs> right. So, but they did more than fight the IPS. They also organized, like, community activities, beach cleanups. They would sponsor local surfers who didn't have the money to buy their own boards or permits. Um, And Eddie was instrumental in creating a truce between the Hui and the IPS in 1978 and became a mediator between the professional surfers and the Hui. And just, he wanted everyone to be able to have access to the waves. And Mm -hmm. he was kind of instrumental in making that kind of return to, you know, give the local people access to their own beaches. Nice. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of his background as to why he became a legend. It wasn't necessarily for winning surfing competitions. It was more for like the work he did in the community and like the lives he saved in the community. Yeah. That's awesome. Good for him. So the next part of this you might remember, um, but the uh, Hokulea, that uh, double double hold canoe that they mm-hmm. the, they sail around the world, was in Yorktown. Oh, yeah. Virginia? I don't know if you were there for that or not. It was like a few, like when we worked at Vim's, like mm-hmm. Yorktown back then. It docked in um, Yorktown for a couple of days. I think I remember hearing something about that. Maybe yeah. I saw it. Maybe I, I don't I don't remember. But yeah. So I wasn't unfortunately there. able to go tour it because I was in the field, but I did see it from the water and like driving over the bridge. Yeah. So. That's neat. 
Yeah. So 1978 was a big year for the 31-year-old Eddie because he was selected to join the cultural expedition of the Hokulea voyaging, the voyaging canoe that was built to rekindle the Polynesian wayfaring tradition of navigation and voyaging. Mm. And this was in the Hokulea's early days. So he was one of the first people kind of selected to join the crew on this. Um, So those of you who don't know, the Hokulea was a 62-foot double-hull voyaging canoe built in 1975 by a team of scholars, historians, and native Hawaiians. Architects wanted to prove that early Polynesians were able to cross vast distances repeatedly without the help of modern, quote-unquote, modern technology Mm -hmm. like metal fittings and navigation aids like compasses and stuff. So they're just navigating by the stars, the wind, the currents. Just going off the vibes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and those of you who have watched Moana kind of know... It's a very like broad paintbrush, but yes. <laughs> it did bring kind of the idea of Polynesian traditional wayfaring to, you know, the wider masses. Yeah. But this is that's what we're talking about is the ability to like read currents and wind patterns and even notice bird species changing, you know, as you're deering an island or going away from an island. That's another mm-hmm. technique, which is, yeah. I think is really cool. So Cultural similarities across several island groups in the South Pacific prove that one successful voyage definitely happened because they're so linguistically like similar. Um, But of course, some scholars thought that repeated travel was too unlikely with the technology possessed by Polynesians at the time of this migration. Um, And I would like to do probably an, an episode about like Polynesian wayfaring at some point because it's so fascinating. Yeah. And I think this is the second time maybe that we've talked about it. But um yeah, it's really, really cool, really interesting. These people had, you know, the ability to navigate one of the scariest oceans in the world. Yeah. Like before, you know, we were even having, you know, countries in Europe. We were all just still kind of running around you know, scrambling, fighting each other. You know what I mean? So we were like not even crossing the Atlantic Ocean at that point. And that culture over there is like really interesting too. Yeah. I don't know. I like it. Yeah. The South Pacific is friggin' so cool. Like it's such a unique place. Doesn't get talked about a lot unless, you know, people are talking about like, you know, a tiki bar or something. Yeah. So, but it's... I think Polynesian wayfaring is like so cool. Um, So Ben Finley, who's a scholar and participant said, our success in following traditional sailing directions from Rarotonga to Aotearoa, which is New Zealand, um, in repeatedly sailing back and forth over the legendary voyaging track between Hawaii and Tahiti indicates that these voyages between distantly separated Polynesian centers were probably well within the capacity of Polynesian voyaging canoes and navigation methods. So this is one of the ways that we are proving that that is entirely possible. Like they go out without compasses, without yeah. GPSs, without any of it. Mm-hmm. And they navigate in That's between. That's so crazy. I could never, I could never it's, do that. Yeah. So while there were a lot of successes with the Hokulea, 
there were mishaps on the voyages with pieces of the ship, you know, breaking in rough seas and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, at this point, I think they had already successfully gone to Tahiti and back. So it was their first trip. And I believe this maybe was the second trip, but I could be wrong. Um, so the journey was planned by the Polynesian Voyaging Society and was a 30-day, 2,500-mile journey from Hawaii to the Tahitian island chains, following the routes taken by ancient Polynesian migrants. And that's the boat they were on for 30 days. Crazy. I know. Just How, out uh, in the they open. Had, they had, uh, I'm sure, provisions, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't also sure if, like, maybe they were like, oh, we'll just catch our fish on the way. Like, you know, we don't need that mm-hmm. much because we know kind of how to use the ocean to feed ourselves kind of thing. I'm, so. I'm sure they did fish, but I think they did take, you know, rations and stuff for yeah. the full month. Um, so this trip that Eddie is going on uh, is to a second trip to Tahiti, basically. That's a long journey. Uh it's big it's a lot of ocean to cross and ever since you mentioned moana every time you say tahiti in my head i just hear tafiti Tafiti. (laughs) the heart of tafiti yeah so uh the hokulea left magic island oahu on march 16th 1978 bound for tahiti there was a gale warning in effect that day but captain dave lindman decided to leave as the weather was forecasted to moderate later in the day and the Hokulea had sailed in those conditions before. Uh, The ship unfortunately met a storm and developed a leak in one of the holes and capsized 12 miles south of the island of Molokai. Oh my god. Will Kaiselka in the book An Ocean Mind describes the conditions Swells were high, but the canoe had ridden out such seas before. However, this time it was heavily laden with food, supplies, and supplies for a month's journey. The added weight put unusual stress on the canoe, making it difficult to handle. Um, Turning off wind eased the strain, but also caused the sea to wash over the gunnels and filled the starboard compartments and was depressing the lee hull. So... Basically, because it was laden with provisions, it was riding lower in the water and was harder to control. And water got into the double hole. Oh, no. Because the waves were washing over. Yeah. Oh, God. So Eddie and the crew, which was 16 members in total, clung to the hull of the capsized vessel, trying to protect themselves as best they could from the elements. They saw airplanes fly overhead, but no one saw them. Mm. And the Hokulea was quickly drifting away from the airline routes, which decreased their chances of being spot. Yeah. Oh, my God. Because they're drifting out into the big old Pacific. Yeah. Right? Scary. Uh, so first crew member Snake Ahi left, which cool fucking name, first of all. That's what I just, yeah. <laughs> I saw that, too. I was like, oh, nice. so he left on a surfboard to try to get aid but when a low-flying plane appeared he assumed the ship had been spotted and then returned 
Oh no. Um, Ugh. Which I would do because I wouldn't want to. I don't want to paddle out into the middle of the ocean to try to get to yeah. an island or a boat and find help. And then like, also, like if you think it's a low flying plane that spotted them, you're like, oh shit, I gotta get over there so I can get rescued too. Right. Right. Like I gotta get back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. So after waiting a few hours after he got back, it was clear that no one was coming to their rescue. No one had oh, saw them. No. So that's scary. Uh, the crew took shelter on the leeward hull, standing on the running board, um, and they had put on foul weather gear and gathered the supplies. They had fired flares at the passing aircraft, but no one noticed, and the crew wasn't able to raise anyone via radio. Oh, my God. So the next morning, the crew was starting to be in a bad condition. Crew member... Kikili Hugo recalls, we were like hours away from losing people. Hypothermia, exposure, exhaustion. It was then that Eddie decided to go for help, and he was given permission by the captain to do so at 10.30 a.m. in the morning. Navigator Nainoa Thompson paddled out with him for a while to test the waves, and then Eddie went alone pointed toward the nearby island of Lanai to try to get help and get the crew rescued. Um, he had removed his life jacket as it was hindering the paddling of the surfboard in the rough waves. Will Kaiselka spoke of this. Eddie would go alone. The crew, clinging to the overturned holes, watched in silence as he rode the waves into a fate unknown to many of the people of old who sailed toward distant lands. The crew joined hands in prayer and wished Eddie strength and luck as he departed. Kikili Hugo recalled, when Eddie paddled away, I really thought he was going to make it and we weren't. That's how bad it is that we were doomed. Oh no, that's so sad. Yeah. At 3.30 in the afternoon, a ship passed but did not see them. At 8... 47 at night, flares from the canoe were finally spotted by the last Hawaiian Airlines flight from Kona on the Big Island. Wow. The plane circled overhead and flashed its landing lights and then reported the sighting to the U.S. Coast Guard. Hugo wow. stated, we were close to dying out there. At 7.15 or 7.30, we started looking at the Kona direction for the last flight coming out of Kona. The flight left Kona slightly late, and the pilot altered the flight path to compensate. It was a miracle find, a miracle rescue. Oh my gosh, I just got chills. That's why I said chills. Yeah. <laughs> At uh, 1.20 a.m. on March 18th, the Coast Guard cutter Cape Corwin arrived at the Hokulea, which had drifted two miles west of where it was first sighted by the plane. Oh, they wow. already drifted two miles. Yeah, that's crazy. From their location. The remaining 15 crew members were rescued and the canoe was righted and towed in to uh, the islands the following morning. So I kind of have a diagram of, of where they were. And honestly, if they had kept drifting... They would have just drifted out into the... Yeah, they would have been out to the sea for yeah. sure. Yeah. Wow. So the search for Eddie was the largest 
air sea search in Hawaiian history. But Eddie Akau was never seen again. God, that's so sad. I wonder what happened to him. I mean, they just assumed he died. Mm -hmm. But like, I wonder, you know, you just always wonder when there's no answer. Well, you wonder, like, how long did it take? Like, when did he die? Did he drown? Was he exhausted? Yeah, did he drown? Was he exhausted? Was it a shark attack? You know, like, did he get to land and then just, like, die of starvation? Like, what what happened? Yeah. Well, I don't think so, because Lanai is not super populated, but I think they would have found him if they had gotten there. Yeah. Yeah. And that was probably the closest island to him yeah it looks like it from that little diagram that's yeah so which he knew to go there that's how good wayfaring is you know yeah even when you're capsized you can still figure out where the closest place is that you can go right yeah so nanoa thompson said of his efforts at a deeper level eddie tried to rescue not only the crew of the hokulea the symbolism and dignity of the canoe because he knew it carried the pride of his people. Oh. The Hawaiian and more specifically North Shore community was devastated by the loss of the now famous lifeguard and surfing champion. Nainoa Thompson reflected, after Eddie's death, we could have quit. But Eddie had this dream about finding the islands the way our ancestors did. And if we quit, he wouldn't have his dream fulfilled. He was a lifeguard. He guarded life and lost. He lost his own trying to guard ours. Oh, so I'm getting the chills right now. I know that's just like such a touching statement, you know. I he know guarded life, and he lost his own trying to guard ours. Oh, and like he is known as a surfer, but I think he is more famous for his, his life guarding, life saving. Yeah. Yeah. So after this, safety precautions were heightened in the Polynesian Voyaging Society. After introducing regular radio communication, hatch covers being made airtight, checklists and procedures were developed, and training programs became more rigorous. Um, Today, the Hokulea regularly circumnavigates the entire globe today, and a placard, or it carries a placard dedicated to Eddie. Nice. And so that's when it was in Yorktown in Virginia, that it was doing one of its oh wow global trips. That's neat. Yeah. So they go beyond the South Pacific now. So I think they've very clearly proven that Polynesians probably could have sailed around the yes. South Pacific. Yes, definitely could have. Mm-hmm. Oh. Now I'm kind of mad that I didn't get go on board. Should have done it. Should have been like screw work. I'm sure that there there'll be another time somehow, some way, you know. Yeah. So in um 1984, the Quicksilver in memory of Eddie Akau surfing event was established at Sunset Beach and later moved to Waimea Bay until modern day. The event was renamed the Eddie Akau Big Wave Invitational in 2018-2020 and only runs when swells reach a minimum height of 20 feet. Wow. Due to the requirements of the competition, the event has only been held eight times since its inception in 1984. Wow, that's crazy. One event organizer describes the event, it has to be big for this thing to run. 
really big, scary big, sacred big. Oh, I got chills again. I'm telling you, <laughs> the time I was writing this, I was like, oh, this is so good. Yeah. Um, the competition is open to both ASP tour champions and locals alike, but the iCow family personally chooses the entrance into the competition. Oh, that's um, cool. I know. To open the waiting period for the waves in the winter, surfer, surfers paddle out to a recreation of the Hokulea together out of ceremonial respect for Eddie. So that's how they kind of open the waiting period. Yeah. Um, sorry. You're good. One year when the waves met the height requirement but appeared too dangerous to surf, organizers considered calling it off, said surfer Mark Fu, as he was talking to a cameraman who was capturing the surf, and said what is now Eddie's classic motto, Eddie would go. Mm-hmm. And that year the event was held because Eddie would go. Oh, And that's the, the story. That's so crazy. Surfer Eddie Aikau and his life-saving capabilities. And yeah, that's the wild. capsizing of the Hokulea. And the last one was December 14th to 2022 to March 13th, 2023. Mm-hmm. So it's held over a good chunk of time. Yeah, I think it's, you know, during the period when you get these really big swells. Yeah. And I think with surf competitions, you can't really plan them in the same way that you can other uh, sports events because it's dependent on, like, the waves being there. Yeah. You know, like, if if you're doing a big wave, like, a big wave surf competition and you don't have big waves, like, you just can't do it. Yeah. If you go on the Eddie com website um the front page the first thing you see it says the bay calls the day and then it says current status no eddy swells on the horizon mm-hmm. so and yeah i think it's during the winter so i think maybe the the waiting period might have started yeah but they have the 2023 to 2024 invitees named already on the website mm-hmm. yeah so it's dependent on the weather now so if you want to go and keep an eye on that, um, I think maybe the season is open. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. There's about like 40 invi- invitees. Mm-hmm. They have women's alternates, men's alternates, forever legends. Yeah. Neat. That's cool. Yeah. They have a foundation you can support. Yeah. Yeah, yeah go directly. check it out. Um, if you want to give back to something that is important, <laughs> yeah, is way to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Eddie Akau Foundation is a charitable 501c3 organization created to share Eddie Aku, how do you say it? Akau? Akau. Akau's life, uh, contributions, and accomplishments while promoting education and the advancement of Hawaiian culture. Yep. Nice. Yeah, so now we're going to talk about one of Hawaii's other greats, maybe the greatest great in surfing. Yes. Yes. All right. I'm ready for it. And we're going to kind of go back even further in time. Back to when surfing actually for real, for real kicked off. Oh, um, yeah. On the mainland. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to talk about Duke Kahanamoku, 
and his Newport Beach rescue. Oh, like in Rhode Island? No, in California. Oh, okay. <laughs> you never know. You just never know. <laughs> you know, Rhode Island's really known for those those big waves, man. <laughs> okay, we all know I'm an idiot, Jillian. That's why you lead the show. <laughs> it's fine. I kind of want to see people try to surf Newport Beach now, though. <laughs> that would be a terrible idea. Don't do it. No, no I think what are the best surfing waves? I think on the entire East Coast are like in Hatteras, which I've been to Hatteras. They're not that big. Yeah, they're not. Um, it, but it probably is somewhere like in that North Carolina coast. Area. Yeah, or Buxton like people, is people, where people go. Yeah. People will, yeah. like, wait for hurricanes to ride big waves on the East yeah. Coast. That's, yes. Like, I remember when Sandy came through, like, people were out in Virginia Beach trying to surf. I do. Yes. I remember yeah. that, too. Yeah. <laughs> when, obviously, in the Keys, there's no waves like that to surf. But when mm-hmm. Ian came through, um, there's some spots where people were like trying to surf at too and it's like that's the only time where yeah. you can have waves it's like during hurricane season exactly which is so dangerous because that's not like a nice wave to ride that's choppy and chaotic yes. yeah and deadly okay. yeah like the reason why waves in the pacific are so much better is because they're smooth and they have a face that you could actually ride yes versus like what we have which is just a jumble of chaos you know (laughs) yeah it's just chaos coming right at you yeah all right so duke kahanamoku who i think i'm gonna add him to our list of uh hot guys in survival stories I did not see you going there with it. I thought you were going to be like, oh, I'm going to add him to our list of like legends, like our legendary stories, like top 10 stories. I mean, that too. But like, I was just looking at like the pictures of like young Duke and I was like, Duke could get it for sure. (laughs) (laughs) He is an attractive fit Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. So he was, is one of the world's most famous surfers and is generally considered the father of modern surfing. Uh, Duke was a native Hawaiian born in Honolulu on August 24th and the first of nine children to Duke Halapu Halapu, sorry, and Julia Peoa Kahanamoku. As a kid growing up near Waikiki Beach, he developed swimming and surfing skills and preferred boards that were constructed from native koa wood at 16 feet long and weighing 114 pounds. Like, these were big fucking boards. Wow. Yeah. And obviously we use different methods of construction today because surfboards are not that heavy. Yes. (laughs) But that's what old school Hawaiians rode on. That's crazy. Giant long boards, yeah. At this point, surfing was pretty much unknown to the rest of the world, but was considered traditional heritage by Native Hawaiians. Um, By 1911, Duke was breaking records at his very first swimming races in Honolulu, 
Harbor with three freestyle world records broken by at least 4.6 seconds. That's so crazy. That's so much time in swimming. Right? That's a lot of time in swimming. It's a lot. Um, Also, I Googled him like right when you started talking. He was born in 1890. Yeah. That is so wild to think about. Like, I feel like, I don't know, like... I don't know. When you talk about like 1911 surfing, whatever, I'm like, oh, yeah, like that was like kind of long ago. But then like just seeing him born in 1890, I'm like, oh, my God, like, yeah, he was born in the 1800s. <laughs> I'll, I'll put this into perspective. He was starting surfing and, and breaking records. I, I guess I forgot to put in the date that he was the year that he was born. My bad. Thanks for including. No, you're fine. It's good. <laughs> and then I see that he uh, if I can say this, I see that he died in 1968 so like he I'm like I was trying to find like the number because I can't do math in my head like that but it's like he was like almost like 100 years old like he was like I don't know like a 30 year short of 100 years old I guess I don't know um I can't do math but like he lived a long time for being yeah. born in 1890 you well, know what I mean like I feel like people yeah. that were born in 1890 like don't live to be that long I don't know well like, think about it this I mean we are those for those people for the next generation that's what i was thinking about too i was like oh my god i'm saying this guy was born in the late 1800s and like fucking kids in the 2000s are like oh you were born in the late 1900s i'm like shut the fuck up like don't say that (laughs) that's gonna be us in like 60 (laughs) years you know i know it's so wild to think about i'm having like a really big like existential crisis right now (laughs) as i'm like reading all of this so like excuse me i'm having a little bit of a mental freak out so to but, put, this is something I find very interesting about people born in the early 19th century or yeah, in the late 18th century. Like he was breaking surfing or swimming records around the same time that Shackleton and the Endurance got stuck in the ice in Antarctica. That's, that's around the same time. World War One hadn't happened yet. That's really weird to think about. Yeah. That kind of makes me feel icky for some reason. <laughs> and by the time he died, uh, the moon landing had happened. Yeah. My parents were alive by the time he died. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Like a lot <laughs> happened in that time period. A lot. I know. It's weird to think about like all of the things that happened back then. Yeah. It, it makes it heeb jeebs heeb jeebs yeah i got the chills again (laughs) but so that's that's when he and honestly like a lot of his pictures i have to remember that this is in like the 20s because they look very modern they do that's why i was like wait a second these look like they were like in like the 50s or 60s photos because like they're the black and whites you know Mm -hmm. and i'm like let me just like go see like when you know he was born and then it said 1890 and i was like holy shit (laughs) yeah i was so off base on this yeah, because like this first picture, yeah, you're like thinking maybe that's the 50s, and then you scroll yes. down to this other picture, and everybody's like in suits and top hats and shit. You're like, yeah, what? I know. I'm like, where? Yeah, that's why I needed to Google it because I was like, I don't, I can't tell what time frame this is. Yeah. So he was also, besides being a surfer, he was an Olympian. That would make sense, being how good he is at things. Yes. Yeah. And surfing wasn't really a thing, so there were no competitions yeah to win right fair so in 1912 he became an olympian winning two olympic uh gold medals at the 1912 stockholm olympics 
uh, setting another record for gold in the 100-meter freestyle and winning silver in the U.S. freestyle relay team. Uh, With his Olympic fame, he began introducing surfing to the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand and helped popularize surfing in the U.S., especially in Southern California. In 1918, he also swam in over 30 exhibitions in mainland cities to raise money for the World War I effort. Oh my god. World War I. (laughs) Jeez. It's, It's hard to like wrap your head around yeah um in 1920 he won two more gold medal medals at the antwerp olympics for the 100 meter freestyle and with the u.s freestyle relay team in 1924 he rounded out his olympic career with a silver medal at in the paris olympics for the 100 meal blah 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 for the 100 meter freestyle we got a picture of him receiving Olympic gold at the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. And I included that just so you could see how long ago this was. Yeah, that's <laughs> wild. I like his outfit, though. He's got like a flower crown and then like a nice suit on with some white shoes, white pants. Yeah, and the like, little, a little boat hat, you know, a little yeah. boat hat. Very yes. uh, great Gatsby. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1925, Duke, what? The top hats, though. I know. I can't get over it. And they were serious. They're wearing them for real. I know. Like a joke. It makes me think of like um, Mary Poppins. Mm Hmm. Yeah. It's it's wild. It's like women women were not allowed to vote when that picture was taken. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, my gr- my grandma was alive when women uh, were allowed to vote. Yeah, that's it wasn't that long ago, you know. Like that's just weird to think about. It oh, is that makes me feel icky again. Again, like that. yeah. People, yes, the nineteenth century is a wild one, y'all. Like, yeah, <laughs> wild. So in nineteen twenty five, Duke Kahanemoku was living in Los Angeles after his Olympic wins and giving swimming exhibitions at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. And that was when, you know, Hollywood was really starting to get going, like with mm-hmm. movies and stuff. Yeah. Um, so before the event we were talking about today, um, Duke was also traveling the California coast with his other surfing friends, slowly but surely popularizing the sport in Southern California. He was 35 at the time. Uh, he didn't have a lot of money, but he had a lot of friends, and he always had a car filled with surfboards, including a few long redwood boards. Nice. At the time, Hawaiian and South Pacific culture was becoming very popular, and people all over the mainland were fascinated. Um, and this eventually, you know, created things like tiki and surf culture in like the 1950s. Yeah. Um, Duke was visiting Newport Beach, California. <laughs> in june uh, with a few friends to catch some waves brought um in by a chubasco which i had no idea what that was what is that it is an unexpected and swift squall with thunder and lightning they are common during the rainy season on the pacific coast of southern california mexico central america and south america that's interesting so yeah 
very swift sudden storm that creates a lot of waves yeah so duke and his two friends owen hale and jerry Volchi were camping out on the beach awaiting the waves duke knew the beaches and loved surfing newport and at corona del mar which was similar which was a similar wave to those that he experienced in waikiki um at the time in 1925 newport beach was a rough and tumble town and wasn't even technically a port which is funny because it's one of the most like wealthy yeah that's what i was gonna say rough and yeah. tumble oh my god yeah so that's what was going on then uh, oh, wow. <laughs> the entrance to the harbor could be dangerous to ships but offered the best surfing in the world to surfers at that time in the book surfing newport beach by claudine and paul burnett They stated that Duke rode the waves of Newport Bay in a canoe and when he could, borrowed an actual surfboard from his friend Felix Felix Majewski. Eventually, Duke and some of his friends brought down their own surfboards to Corona del Mar and left them at the Spar bathhouse, starting what would become one of the first surf clubs in the U.S., the Corona del Mar Surf Club. Robert Gardner talked about the club at the time. The Duke asked me to wash over their boards at the Spar bathhouse and see to it that no one stole them. Steal them? An average man couldn't even lift one. <laughs> it's like they these were going nowhere. Mahogany. <laughs> mahogany. <laughs> Did he have, have leather-bound books as well? It just reminds me of, of the... Uh, the scene from the Hunger Games. That is mahogany. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they were made of mahogany, 12 feet long, probably six inches thick, and weighed well over 200 pounds. The Duke asked me to watch over the boards, and I did so in return. He would take me out for a ride on his shoulders. Oh my god. (laughs) He was a powerful man, and I weighed less than 100 pounds, so by what seemed no more than a flick of the wrist, he had me on his shoulders and probably didn't even know I was there during the ride. And I do have a picture of him with a woman on his shoulders further down, and it seemed to be a trick he liked to do with people. (laughs) That's funny. I'm like, lift me up, daddy. Let's do this. That would be that would be so fun to do though. Like, think about like how cool that would be. Right. So at the time in 1925, surfing was considered an oddity, an ancient Hawaiian skill that had really only been introduced recently. So people were still very like, what what is this? What are we doing? Yeah. Um, so I have a picture of Duke in Waikiki with one of those long boards. I mean, they're huge. They are really big, yeah. Um, that and then looks the like, surf, the surf club, like, and then yeah, the shoulder picture. Yeah. yeah, that looks like that's like a twelve or thirteen foot board, probably. Yeah, they're huge. Mm-hmm. So on June fourteenth, nineteen twenty-five, as the Chubasco came through Southern California, Newport Beach Harbor was hit by unrelenting swells from twenty to thirty feet in height. Um, so Eddie would have been there. <laughs> yeah, Eddie would go. <laughs> um, and the sandbars at the entrance to the harbor were constantly shifting, which made it 
you know, really dangerous for boats. Um, Storms like these had caused deaths in Newport Beach before. As just a year earlier, on June 8th, the 30-foot fishing boat Adieu overturned during a storm off Corona del Mar. Five of the 17 passengers and crew drowned during the event. Oh, wow. Um, On May 21st, just three weeks before this storm that we're going to talk about, a rowboat carrying three teenagers capsized in the waves, drowning one of them before they could all get to safety. Oh, my God. That's so sad. So at the time, it was very dangerous. Yeah. So this storm was no exception. Disaster struck as the Thelma, a 40-foot, five-ton sport fishing yacht, tried to enter the harbor. A huge wave smashed the bow of the Thelma, flooding the engine room. The vessel, according to the LA Times, was caught broadside in the teeth of three tremendous breakers and rolled completely over three times from starboard to port on the sand of the shallow bar. The swell, as it gained momentum, merged into a mountainous wave and crashed over the bow, smashing the plate glass window of the engine room. Practically, all the members of the pleasure party were swept overboard with the first wave and were struggling in the midst of torn wreckage and pounding waves. Wow. So they're out there fighting for their lives, while debris from the ship is, like, raining down on them. Yeah. None of the 29 fishermen had time to grab a life preserver before they were violently thrown into the water. So none of them have life jackets. That's crazy. In the book Legendary Surfers, Malcolm Galt Williams stated of the ordeal, From shore, we suddenly saw the charter fishing boat, the Thelma, wallowing in the water trying to get to safe water and it was a losing battle the prospects for picking up the victims looked impossible so duke who was also watching this spoke of watching the ship flounder only a porpoise (laughs) a porpoise a porpoise only a, a a porpoise or a sea lion had the right to be out there From the shore, we saw the Thelma wallowing in the water just seaward of where the breakers were falling. You could see her rails crowded with fishermen. She appeared to be trying to fight her way towards safe water, but obviously it was a losing battle. A mountain of solid green water curled down upon the vessel, spewing geyser up in all directions. Then before the next mammoth breaker could blot out the view again it was obvious the thelma had capsized and thrown her passengers into the roiling sea oh my god which he's got a way with words too he really does yeah yeah the roiling sea very very well spoken (laughs) yeah that's crazy painting a picture really you know Mm mm-hmm So Duke and two of his surfing buddies decided that they needed to jump into action and hopped on their boards. Uh, Duke paddled through the pounding waves to get to the drowning men and just started rounding them up. He stated of the ordeal, don't ask me how I made it, for it was just one long nightmare of trying to shove through what looked like a low Niagara Falls. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Duke said, adding that the waves were building up to barn-like heights. At this point, everyone on board the Thelma was in the water, 
with nothing to hang on to and everyone was fully clothed which was Ooh, that's not good yeah them weighing down, them down. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah then the rescue began in earnest duke described the ordeal i reached the screaming and gagging victims and began grabbing at their frantic arms and legs i brought one victim onto my board then two on another trip possibly three on another then back for one it was a delirious shuttle system in a matter of minutes, we were making rescues. People were screaming, gagging, thrashing. Some victims we could not save at all, for they went under before we could get to them. We lost count of the number of trips we made. Without the boards, we probably would not have been able to rescue a single person. Oh my god, that's crazy. Duke and his friends succeeded in rescuing 12 individuals. Wow. But 17 ended up drowning wow that's crazy duke himself was responsible for eight of those rescues oh my gosh that's how that's strong more than he half is. yeah yeah those rescued were taken to two area hospitals with serious injuries including broken arms and legs because all that debris was in there with them yeah when they were being bashed around yeah, oh my god. Jerry Volte and Owen Hale were also hospitalized for injuries sustained during the rescues that they made. It's crazy. Captain James Porter, who was the Newport Beach chief of police, said the Hanemoku's performance was the most superhuman rescue act and the finest display of surfboard riding that has ever been seen in the world. Many more would have drowned but for the quick work of the Hawaiian swimmer. Yes. Duke later spoke of the rescue, saying, Neither I nor my pals were thinking heroics. We were simply running, me with my board, the others to get their boards, and hoping to save lives. I hit the water very hard, and with all the forward thrust I could generate, I paddled until my arms begged for mercy. Wow. Good for him. Following the ordeal, Duke didn't stick around to try to get media attention for his rescue leaving for before reporters Mm -hmm. arrived that's how you know he's a real one yeah he's like i'm just doing this to save the people i'm not doing this for the attention exactly but the story did make national news and the event is often referred to as the great rescue of 1925 wow and duke received nicknames as the great american hero and the great human fish (laughs) (laughs) the great human fish that's cute Following this, he appeared in 15 movies, playing small roles as the quote-unquote Indian chief, the lifeguard, a Turkish sultan, and a wild animal trainer, and Hmm. playing himself in two documentaries. He also appeared with John Wayne in the movie Wake of the Red Witch as the South Pacific chief Ua Nuke. Duke served as the sheriff of Honolulu for 12 years from 1934 to 1959 and married for the first time at age 40 to dance instructor Nadine Alexander. Oh, that's nice. He continued to win Olympic medals at 42 when he won a bronze medal as an alternate on the U.S. water polo team at the L.A. Olympics, making his Olympic career span 20 years. Wow. So... Still winning medals. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. Upon becoming a state in 1960, 
Duke was appointed the state's official ambassador of Aloha. Oh. Jerry Volte went on to found the Volte Aircraft Corporation, which built the U.S. Army's iconic V-2 dive bomber. Get the hell out of here. He rescued the guy that ended up making army no, bombers? No, the guy, Jerry, was his friend who helped oh, in the rescue. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I misunderstood. But That's that crazy, guy though. rescued people with oh, yeah, that guy rescued. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, 13 years after the Thelma rescue on January 29th, 1938, Volte was piloting a small single engine plane from LA to NYC with his wife, Sylvia, on board when a heavy snowstorm forced them to go off course and try to stop for fuel in Winslow, Arizona. Um, When attempting to land, Volte lost his bearings and crashed into a tree near Sedona. It took rescuers a day to reach the wreckage where they found the bodies of Jerry and Sylvia leaving their six-month-old child an orphan. Oh, that's so sad. So the guy survived that crap in Newport Beach only to gosh, yeah, die in a plane, a plane crash. That stinks. Yeah. Duke himself succumbed to a heart attack at the age of 77. So that's how long he lived. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, 77. Okay. Yeah, I was like, I can't uh, do math. Now we know, 77. I mean, that's still really old, especially for it that, is. you know. Yeah. Um, on January 22nd, 1968, um, his ashes. Oh, no, we hadn't gone to the moon yet. That was 1969. We were about oh. to go to the moon. Oh, my okay. Bad. Gotcha. Still, still crazy, though. I mean, it, there was talk about going to the moon back then. Probably, yeah. Right? Well, they, we were trying. We were putting yeah. it out there. We had at least yeah. gone to space, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So his ashes were scattered in the Pacific off Honolulu. Statues of Duke Kahanamoku have been erected on Huntington Beach in California and Waikiki Beach in Honolulu, and he was inducted into the Huntington Beach Surfers Hall of Fame, the International Surfing Hall of Fame, and the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame. To continue to support Duke's aloha spirit, you can donate to the Outrigger Duke Kahanamoku Foundation. This foundation financially supports the development of individuals and organizations that perpetuate the spirit and legacy of Duke Kahanamoku. This foundation awards scholarships for scholar athletes from Hawaii and inducts members into the Hawaii Waterman Hall of Fame. Nice. And that is the story of Duke Kahanamoku. Oh. So we're ending on an upper. Yes. (laughs) We are ending on it. But I felt like Eddie's story needed to also be told. Yeah, totally. I can see how you're like doing one story and then you're like, wait, we can just do two stories. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it is a little happen. short, you know, it's, it's more of a, you know, yeah. a smaller event. Oh, look, I have more. Hold on. What I was going to say, it looks like you have a fun fact down there. Oh, yeah. So before this rescue, surfboards had never been considered as a possible life-saving device on the mainland. Um, so the rescue helped sell lifeguard ser- the lifeguard service on the wisdom of keeping paddle boards at the guard towers. The boards soon became standard equipment on the emergency rescue trucks as well as the towers. In short, uh, some good comes from the worst of tragedies. So bringing yeah. it back to Eddie, rescuing people on Waimea Beach on his surfboard. Yes. You know. Yes. So he was kind of starting to make it big just... As Duke passed away. 
That's so crazy. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, a little bit of feel good yeah stuff before we we leave you guys for a little bit <laughs> yes i like to end on an upper before we leave i was like we some. can't end on a guy dying 20 feet from safety and nazis we can't end on <laughs> yeah yeah that that's not a good note to leave on <laughs> for sure so we're leaving on on duke and eddie to yeah. uh amazing and heroic hawaiian watermen Mm -hmm. uh, yep that's a good one mm -hmm. uh do you, you want to do your sources before mm. we get into conservation corner thank you you're welcome all right so my sources were the surfing life story of eddie Icau from surfing today examining the death of eddie Icau, eddie would go by michael woodsmall from the inertia eddie Icau, the rad life of a hawaiian surfing legend by lorraine boisson noll from JSTOR, you know, where mm -hmm. we used to get all of our scientific articles from. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the 1978 voyage to Tahiti canceled after Hokulea capsizes from Hawaiian voyaging traditions. And then for Duke, we have Duke Kahanemoku and the Superhuman Rescue by Gordy Grundy from The Inertia. Heroic Efforts of Duke of Corona Del Mar Remembered by David Henley from The Daily Pilot. Um, Duke Kahanemoku Part 2, The Day He Saved Eight Souls from uh, Roy Tamazawa on the Olympians. And then the Duke Kahanemoku story from dukekahanemoku.com, which is also where you can go donate to that foundation. Gotcha. That's it. That's all I got. Cool. Good deal. So uh, I took your advice for the conservation corner, and uh, I am doing the Hawaiian honey creeper. Yes, so yes, <laughs> uh, another bird, but whatever. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't done a bird in forever now because I, I made I just, that comment, and then you just stopped doing birds, and I was like, well, I, I didn't want to stop the birds. I just get nervous about too much birds, um, but it's fine. <laughs> nervous about too much birds. But it's fine. Um, but it's good. I, I had no idea. I didn't even know what a honey creeper was. And so I was like, this sounds like a cool looking bird. Like, I wonder if it looks scary or like what? Because, you know, it has the word creeper in it. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, what is that? Yeah. Um, And then I Googled it and like, it's a really cool bird. It's like, you know, I'm I don't know if the red orangish color is like their only color uh -huh. but they're like this bright orangish red and they have like this really thin arched long beak to get into like the nectar of uh flowers and stuff and it looks like it's probably i don't know like a smaller sized bird so they just look really cute um and so hawaiian honey creepers they are a group of sm small birds that are endemic to hawaii an endemic means that it's like a plant or an animal that's native or restricted to a certain place. So they are restricted to Hawaii. That's essentially what that means. Mm -hmm. um, they are members of the finch family. And if anybody knows what a finch looks like, the finches have like those thick uh, kind of like triangular beaks. Like they don't yeah. have like the thin curved ones. Um, but I don't know enough about birds to know like whether that kind of thin curved beak is like part of that family or not but um apparently these honey uh creepers are members of the finch family um which i would not have guessed because no. they have different 
different beak shapes. Um, they are closely re related to rose finches, uh, but many species species have evolved features unlike those present in any other finch. Their great morphological diversity is the result of adaptive radiation in an insular environment. And I had to go look up what insular means. So that means that it's any area of habitat suitable for a specific ecosystem that is surrounded by an expanse of unsuitable habitat. So like it's the like, ocean. yeah, like the ocean. So they're <laughs> like, yes, they're on this island. The ocean is around them. The ocean is not suitable habitat for them, but this island is. So, um, many have been driven to extinction since the first humans arrived in Hawaii, with extinctions increasing over the last two centuries following European discovery of the islands with habitat destruction and especially invasive species being the main cause. Yeah. And I say it a little further down, but I didn't really put two and two together that, like, literally the farm animals on Hawaii are invasive species because they mm -hmm. had to bring farm animals to these islands mm -hmm. to farm yeah um yeah that was like one of those like oh yeah that's right that that is a thing moments for me um also sorry if you can hear the rain in the background it is storming um <laughs> i cannot we, you're fine okay. <laughs> i can i can hear it through my headphones so i'm like i don't know if you can pick it up or not but um Nearly all species of Hawaiian honeycreepers have been noted as having a unique odor to their plumage, described by many researchers as rather like that of old canvas tents. Interesting. So I'm assuming it's kind of like a musty, probably, yeah. odor. Um, today, the flowers of native ohia are favored by a number of nectivores, which are the honeycreepers. Mm -hmm. um, the wide range of bill shapes in this group from thick finch-like bills to slender down curved bills for probing flowers have arisen through adaptive radiation where an ancestral finch has evolved to fill, to fill a large number of ecological niches or niches whatever mm -hmm. you say um some 20 species of hawaiian honeycreepers have become extinct in the recent past and many more in earlier times following the arrival of humans who introduced non-native animals such as rats, pigs, goats, cows, and converted uh, their honeycreeper habitat for agricultural purposes. So that's one way that the habitat loss has. Yeah. Um, before the introduction of molecular, molecular phylogenic techniques, the relationship of the Hawaiian honeycreepers to other bird species was controversial. The honeycreepers were sometimes categorized as a family um, of dirt, I'm gonna fuck this up. Drep drep in a day. Other <laughs> and when I when I Googled that, it just came up with honey creepers. So I was like, all right. Yeah. Um uh, other authorities considered them a subfamily of uh Fringillidae, which is the Finch family. Okay. Um the entire group was also called Drepenadini in treatments. Uh, where buntings and American sparrows were included in the finch family. This term is preferred for just one subgroup of the birds today. <clears throat> Most recently, the entire group has been su subsumed into the finch family. Cardulinae. God, I hate it. Latin terms. <laughs> um, I hate it so much. Car Cardul Cardulinae. 
Cardulinae. Cardulinae. We're going to say Cardulinae. We're going to go with it. Yeah. You've seen me butcher Latin. It's Dude. should it's my job. I <laughs> I like in I think it was like was it my animal behavior class? There was one co- college course that I took where like you had to learn the Latin names of them and like that was a struggle. And then just like I only know Latin names of some fish species because like I had to input it into databases so many times, mm-hmm. you know? Like I know. Yeah. I was like, but like birds, like I'm going for the the normal common language term. I'm not going mm-hmm. for the scientific language term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyways, the honey Hawaiian honey creepers are the sister taxon of the rose finches. Uh, their ancestors are thought to have been from Asia and diverged um, from about seven point two, or diverged from Carpodacus about seven point two million years ago. And they are thought to have first arrived and radiated on the Hawaiian Islands between 5.7 to 7.2 million years ago, which was roughly the same time that the islands of uh, Niahu and Kauai formed. The lineage of the recently extinct Ho'uli was the most ancient of the Hawaiian honeycreeper lineages to survive the recent times diverging about 5.7 to 5.8 million years ago Jeez. i know like when i was reading how long ago these birds were here i was like jesus that's a long time ago yeah millions of years ago the lineage containing um oreomistus and pararyomyza was the second to diverge diverging about a million years after the Pauli's lineage most of the other lineages with highly distinctive morphologies are thought to have originated in the mid to late Pliocene after the formation of Oahu, or I'm sorry, Oahu, but prior to the formation of Maui. Due to this, Oahu likely played a key role in the formation of diverse morphologies among honeycreepers, allowing for cycles of colonization and speciation between Kauai and Oahu. So not even all of the islands were formed yet before these yeah, birds were here. I know. That's wild. That's I, when I was reading this, I was like, I have to add that part in because that's really crazy. Where it's like, yeah. yeah, not all of the islands had formed yet, and like some of the birds were on specific islands that yeah. like created that environment for them. And like, you know, what this is reminding me of, and I guess I just didn't realize this about honey creepers. Like I knew what they were and like that yeah. they were endemic, but I didn't know that much about them. It's reminding me of Darwin's finches. That. That's what it was reminding me of when I was like yeah. reading about them too. I was like, that's so crazy. Like, and it, it, it's kind of funny we both think that because like they are thought to be like, what did I say? Like a subfamily of finches. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Which is kind of makes sense too with the Darwin finch stuff. Who knew too. finches could like uh, evolve so quickly? It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I should have maybe been a, ornithologist instead of a fisheries biologist but whatever (laughs) that's fine (laughs) um it's just a hobby now um (laughs) uh so that that little tidbit that i just read was i believe that that yeah okay so that tidbit that i just read was from wikipedia but then i also pulled a tidbit from uh the national park service uh Mm -hmm. i forget which park this is from but this is the nps.gov website for this um next little tidbit so this that's says, probably volcanoes or uh Haleakala 
because they it is they, Haleakala. Yeah, yeah, it's Haleakala National Park is yeah. what this came from. Yeah, uh, for the from the NPS website. But yeah. um, so and this it talks about like their like conservation stuff. So yeah, um. <clears throat> This says within the next 10 years, many native Hawaiian honeycreeper species will be pushed to extinction by the uncontrolled spread of avian malaria. Mm. But it's not too late to save them. With public input, the Department of the Interior will will work with multiple federal agencies, organizations, and their partners to carry out a plan to save Hawaii's honeycreepers from extinction. The plan seeks to suppress southern house mosquito populations across Hawaii. The plan seeks to suppress southern house mosquito populations across Hawaii to reduce the spread of avian malaria and give the honeycreepers a fighting chance to restore their populations. This multi-step plan is proposed to start on Maui to save two endangered honeycreeper species, the Kiwaku and the Aka Echo. Um, Hali, how do we say this? Haleakala, Haleakala, Haleakala mm-hmm. National Park, the state of Hawaii's Department of Land and Natural Resources, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Nature Conservancy, and their partners are working together to coordinate these conservation efforts on the island. On Maui, Honeycreepers live on land that is managed by state and federal agencies. Because of this, the project will follow requirements set by the National Environmental Protection, or I'm sorry, National Environmental Policy Act and Hawaii Environmental Policy Act, which are um, acronymed NEPA and HEPA. Um, The NEPA and HEPA require federal and state agencies to assess the environmental effects of the actions they want to take before they decide to take them. These environmental effects are evaluated through a process called environmental assessment. They are key steps for the National Park Service to complete while conducting an environmental assessment for uh, the National Environmental Policy Act compliance. And then you can learn more about all of this online. Um, And it's like their environmental assessment uh, has been for the project has been published for public review Mm -hmm. and they can anybody can see that online as well. Cool. Uh, that is how their uh, conservation is trying to be uh, managed. Mm-hmm. But they are, I believe, listed as critically endangered. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, that is no bueno. No. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't, again, it's really interesting drawing the similarities between Darwin's finches and the honey creepers. One, because I guess they are finches and mm-hmm. they've both experienced adaptive uh, radiation um, and based on the fact that they're in very isolated island locations, which is something that happens yeah. um, given enough time. And so, you know, if if you could go back in time, you could probably run the same experiments Darwin did mm-hmm. on these finches and yes. kind of have the same results. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And like the Galapagos and um, Hawaii yeah. are both volcanic islands yeah that did not appear all at the same time right yes so that's, that's crazy that's interesting yeah and then the like other... num- number wise it says on the usgs.gov site that like uh once there were more than 50 species of honeycreepers spread across hawaii today there's only 17 species that remain with few species having less than 200 individuals remaining yeah so there's not yeah. a whole lot going on yeah and the other interesting thing, and I think this is kind of what triggered me to think about honeycreepers, there's this um, nature documentary that I love called um, South Pacific or 
sometimes I think the American version is Wild Pacific, and mm -hmm. um, Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch does the voice for it. Okay, I like the, and they talk about Hawaii as being the most isolated group of islands in the world. Oh wow! Because it is so. If you look at it on a map, it's like smack dab in the middle of the Pacific. Yes. So it's so far away from any other landmass that the only species native to the islands, like vegetation included, or like mm -hmm. a very small group of of trees that were able to do wind wind transport. Same with insects, birds, and bats, and that's it yeah as only the animals that were and a couple maybe a couple of anoles that hitched a ride on some floating debris and somehow a mating pair managed to make it to the islands yes coconuts are not native yeah is that wild coconuts did not make it to hawaii because it's so isolated yes <laughs> so this service uh, i don't know island biogeography is like so fascinating to me you know and mm -hmm. then you get like two braiding pairs of finches that come here. And then all of a sudden you have all of this crazy adaptive radiation because all of the niches are open to them and they have no predators. Yeah. It's so cool. It if you don't really think cool. evolution is cool, get off this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it is cool. I'm going to probably be Googling Darwin's finches all over again the rest of this yeah. afternoon. Yeah. But it's the same thing, like all the different beak shapes kind of fitting in, yeah. you know, the food that they need to be able to use and eat. Mm -hmm. So, so cool. So cool. All right. Sorry, I didn't mean to hijack that, but I was like. No, oh. no, you're good. I'm just Googling Darwin Finches now and I saw this <laughs> graphic, so I like wanted to look at it. Yeah. I definitely think the honey creepers have like cooler beaks, though, because they have those like, they're like. It's hummingbirds almost yeah it is you know which speaking of hummingbirds i saw a hummingbird land on like a branch for like the first time ever in my life and i was with alex and i was like i like saw it like flying and i was like oh look a hummingbird and i was like oh my gosh look it landed and he was like <gasps> just as mind blown as i was he was like i don't think they ever really land on branches do they i was like i don't know but they're yeah. like they're so small it was like so teeny i was like oh I know. my god <laughs> they're so cute i think we're getting into maybe hummingbird season soon so we always yeah. look out for them we we have a ton down here in texas it's crazy i want to get one of those like honey uh not honey no i'm on honey finches um uh but uh hummingbird feeders i want yeah. one of those like but i'm nervous about like ants oh yeah it's, like sugar water essentially isn't it yeah well, fun story about that. Uh, my brother drank like half a bottle of hummingbird juice because not. my grandma thought it was uh, Kool-Aid. Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> he was like a How toddler. How old was he? Oh, poor yeah. baby. You know. <laughs> so yes, it is just sugar water. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, I I mean, hey, that's easily, that's easily confused. It's basically the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, Maybe try it. Maybe keep it away from the house, too. Uh, Yeah, I know. And that's hard. It's like, but I want to watch them. You know, it's like, yeah. I keep it. And like, I got to figure out a situation for my bird feeders, too, because we have palm rats around here. Like, that's not mm. anything new. And so, yeah. like, 
I haven't refilled my bird feeder for the longest time because like it just makes a mess on the porch and then like rats are coming in a little bit more if like the bird feeds there. So I have to figure out a way to like kind of hang it out in a way so like Yeah. the rats aren't climbing on it and yeah, so. Yeah. You have palm rats. I have armadillos, you know, Fine. Everything's classic. fine. Yeah. All right. Uh, not that we super duper need it today, but got to close out on our happy things. Yeah, we do. Happy things. Um, uh, you know, I'm happy that my dress is in. Like, Yeah. that's exciting. Um, uh, I'm just, yeah, I have, like, everything's kind of good right now. I go in and get my dress in two weekends, so. Yeah. I guess that's kind of my happy thing, too, is all the festivities, festivities for your wedding are going to start kicking off here soon, which is exciting. Exciting. Yeah. Um, so by the time you hear us again, uh, we will have come back from the bachelorette party. Yeah. Yeah, which is not going to be anything too crazy. <laughs> Like, I'm not that kind of crazy bachelorette kind of person. I'm not telling you anything, That's because fine. the only thing you know is when it is and where it is, right? Yeah. And, like, Yeah. my mom's coming. I know that. Yes. Yeah. Because, like, I don't know. I didn't want to do a bridal shower. My mom, like, asked about it. And I was like, dude, honestly, like, I've traveled so much last year. Like, the last thing I want to do is, like, fly home again. Like, you know Right. what I mean? It was Mm just going to happen, like, way too soon. And then, like, they were going to be out in California helping my brother with, like, the twins and everything. So I was like, I don't really think that either of us have time -hmm. Yeah. for that. So I think, you know, inviting my mom and my mother-in-law for a bachelorette was kind of like the happy medium, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, No, I think I think it'll be fun for sure. yeah, I'm Um excited. I've never yeah. been to St. Augustine and I've always wanted to go there and it's like a, Oh, really? I have been to St. Augustine. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it's Yeah, so fun. I've, I've like driven through there, but I've never like actually stopped and like spent time there. And like, it just like looks like a cool, cool spot, you know? Yeah. Well, it's one of the oldest cities, European cities in the in the entire actually North America, I think. Yes. Yeah. And I saw that, like, what's his name? Ponce de Leon, like, Um, found the fountain of youth there. And there's like a yeah, park you can go and like drink from the fountain of youth because it's like right, a spring and stuff. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So it'll be cool, <laughs> it'll be good. Um, but I'm yeah. not gonna tell you anything else. <laughs> No, that's fine. I'll be surprised. It's been like a really weird like experience for me, like just trusting that, like, you know, the bachelorette's being planned because typically like. I'm like, oh, like, you know, the planner and the organizer. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is really weird. I just, is it even happening? I don't even know what's going on. I just Mm know -hmm. when and where it is. Yep. Like, Yep. That's all you, that's all you need to know. That's all yeah, you need to know. I'm just slightly a control freak <laughs> sometimes, you know, so Dude, that's me fine. too. But I like relinquished all of, I just told Jenny that I wanted it to be in the same state <laughs> and like around yeah. the time of the wedding. So people didn't have to buy like multiple plane tickets, you know, Yeah. that's, that was my only request. Because Yeah. everybody in my bridal party, except for her, were biologists. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, You're if like, they're not I know making what, that kind of money. yeah, you're like, I know what salary <laughs> you are. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. I know. I just wanted it in like the same state. Cause one, like anywhere <laughs> else, it would have been fucking cold to do a bachelorette yes. party. And like, Yes. I don't want to go anywhere cold. I like don't like the cold, <laughs> you know? So I was like, yeah. it's going to be in Florida somewhere. And I hate Miami. So that's not, it's not going to be there. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, it'll be it'll be a good time. So I guess that's my happy thing too. That and uh just have had a lot of time to relax over Christmas because we didn't go home. And so Corey Yeah. and I had a very um 
super duper chill Christmas. Nice. Yeah. If you had so. a chill Christmas too, that that's also like my happy thing. Yeah. All right. Well. Cool. Well, you guys can listen to us on any streaming platform. So uh, Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, uh, what else is out there? Spotify is out there. Um, we also have a website that you can listen to us on there. And also check out uh, Nifty Maps that Jillian has created of every episode location. Um, so that is Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast.com. Uh, we are also on social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Facebook is Mother Nature Will Kill You. Instagram is Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast. And then TikTok um, is, did I say TikTok? Anyway, I don't know. TikTok, I don't know. I just kind of rambled it off. Uh, TikTok is MNWKY Podcast. Uh, so you guys can follow us and find us and listen to us um, on all pretty much social media and listening platforms. Okay. Yeah. And uh, if uh, you have saved people on a surfboard, which I feel like is actually a very attainable survival story. <laughs> it, yes. It, yes. For if you sure are a lifeguard is. and have made a save or, hey, if you've visited the the Hokulea on its round the world trip, um, we want to hear about it. Yep. Um, and you can send that to either we have a page on our uh, website that you can submit stories to or you can send them to our email and then if you want to support the podcast but don't have any money because we live in a post-capitalist hellscape you can submit a five-star review to any of our listening platforms hooray hooray <laughs> yeah all right so with that until next time stay safe but most of all Stay curious, explorers. Bye bye. Bye. Get out of here. <laughs> hey, explorers. Um, this is Jillian here, just adding on because we totally forgot to mention it in the podcast episode, but we will be uh taking a break and we will be um posting our next episode on March 4th. Um, so come back, listen to us then. Until then, I'm going to be posting some of our, or what I think are our more interesting episodes um, from the past um, every week. So you'll still get content. You'll actually get more content, but um, not new content until March 4th. Um, hope you guys uh, continue to stick around. And thanks again for listening to the podcast. Uh, we'll see you soon. Bye.